You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Good. It is good to see you. Happy New Year to you. I know it's January 12th, but this is the first time that I've seen you, so it seems fitting to me anyway, since we're our first time together in 2020. Uh, glad to be with you guys. My name is Michael Bailey. I am one of the pastors here at Midtown Fellowship. I'm pumped as always to get to be in God's Word with you together this morning. What you just saw were clips of last year's Serve the City weekend, and uh, in my own personal opinion, nothing really gets the blood going like a bunch of white people dancing, right? Like, it's just, it's a fun time. It's a real, real fun time. Uh, uh, but if you're unfamiliar, Serve the City Weekend, uh, it's actually coming up next weekend for us. It is a yearly thing that we do as a family of churches on Martin Luther King Weekend every year where we basically attempt to flood our community with the love of Jesus. So basically, for the weekend, we partner with seven different organizations throughout our community that are, in one way or another, ministering to the most marginalized and needy in our midst. And our aim really is to come alongside them uh, and enhance the work that God is doing in and through them on a yearly basis. And so for us, Serve the City is something of a core marker of what we want our identity to be as a church. Ever since the first church in our family of churches was planted, we have believed that the call to follow Jesus has always been and always will be a call to love and care for those around us, especially those who are often uncared for or unloved by our society. And so we find that Serve the City Weekend is a really fitting way for our family of churches to begin our new year together. And so with that in mind, I have a couple of things for us this morning. First of all, I just want to put a word out there for you that if you have not signed up for Serve the City Weekend yet, do so today. Don't wait any longer. There are tons of opportunities for you to serve uh, in a lot of different capacities. Some are ch- uh, family friendly, some are not, but that's not a worry because we have childcare available for you. It's really easy to sign up. You just go to servethecityweekend.com. All the information about our different partnerships and what you'll be doing will be there. But I just want to go ahead and put it out there for you. That's coming up next weekend. So if you have not signed up to serve yet, you want to do that today. But the second thing that I have for us is really... Now, for the next two weeks, what I want to do as a church is I want us to revisit some of the fundamental aspects of what makes us us. I want to I revisit some of the foundational things about who we are that will hopefully help put serve the city into some perspective, but honestly, on a larger scale, give you some perspective on the life that Jesus is inviting each and every one of us into as believers, the life that he actually has for us as Christians. And hopefully, if you're a believer, specifically one that has been part of our church for a while, hopefully none of this is going to sound remotely new to you. And I, I, I hope that is actually the case, that it all should sound familiar. And I, I might use some fresh language with you this morning, but it should be content that you are somewhat familiar with. But my prayer really is that in this time of year, since it's the beginning of the year and we're all in that mode of thinking about who we want to be for 2020 and where we want to go and the type of life that we want to live, I hope that the things that we will talk about today and next week will give you some framework 
for how to envision the life that Jesus is actually calling you to. So with that in mind, what we're going to do is we're going to begin by surveying a few different texts this morning from the biography of Jesus' life uh, called The Gospel According to Mark. We're going to start in chapter 1, and we're going to jump around a bit. If you don't have a Bible, there are some located under your seats. You're welcome to pick up one of those, take it home with you if you would like, or you can just flip there in your app. But we're going to jump around a little bit this morning and take a survey of what Jesus is doing. So let's pick up in Mark chapter 1. This is verse 16, and it reads, Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. All right, flip over one page. Let's go to Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 13. And he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. One more. Flip over a couple of pages to Mark chapter 8. We'll pick up in verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Now, let me ask you a question. What do these texts have in common? This is not a trick question, nor is it rhetorical. You can respond. Follow me. Ah, see, look at you guys reading and understanding things. Fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. They all in some way, shape, or form embody a call or an invitation of Jesus to follow him. Or in another way to say it would be an invitation to become his disciple. Now, when we think about Jesus, who he is and what he came to do, we often think about words like son of God or savior or Messiah, or Christ, and all of those are immensely important categories and titles of Jesus, and they're all 100% true about who he is and what he came to do. However, if you were a first century Jew and Jesus showed up in your town or at your synagogue one Sabbath to teach, you would have also put him into another category, a category that we don't really have as modern 21st century Americans, and that category would have been the category of rabbi. Now, rabbi was a Hebrew title of honor, meaning my teacher or my master. And most commonly, it referred to a teacher who would either be employed by a local synagogue or would be traveling from town to town with what he called his yoke, which was a Hebrew euphemism for his teaching. So if you've ever wondered what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 11 when he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, he's talking about his teaching. He's talking about his message. And over and over again, what we see throughout the Gospels is that Jesus is referred to by those who follow him, those who want to follow him or who are interested in following him, and sometimes even just by those who want to show him some respect, they all tend to call him rabbi. And what I would submit to you this morning is that actually has some profound implications for us on how we understand what's taking place in these passages, as well as what it means for you and I to be believers and followers of Jesus ourselves. 
So I'll show you what I mean. We're going to need to do just a little bit of uh, some History Channel deep nerd diving here for a few minutes. So y'all just hang with me. If that's not your deal, just bear with it. I promise it's going someplace incredibly important. But here we go. First, the word disciple is one of those words where in English it doesn't really do us a whole lot of favors because it's not really a word that we use too much outside of strictly religious settings. In Hebrew, the word for disciple would have been the word talmudim, which in Greek gets translated mathetes, okay? And most often, what we associate it with is we associate it with the ideas of a student or a learner, and that is a completely fine way to translate it. But because we all kind of grew up in a Western learning environment where basically it fo- we, our learning or our educational system focuses primarily on information transfer, The idea of learner or student actually misses a lot of what this would have meant in this context. For us, really, a closer idea to what the text is getting at when it calls Jesus' followers disciples, or just talks about disciples in general, is the idea of an apprentice. An apprentice. You see, in the Jewish educational system of Jesus' day, discipleship was essentially the crowning achievement for a Jewish man. It was the apex of Jewish learning. It was like getting the full ride and the degree from an Ivy League school. This is why when Jesus calls the fishermen, they just drop their nets and go, and nobody really bats an eye. Like Zebedee isn't like, hey, sons, these nets aren't going to mend themselves. What are you doing, right? Like, no, he doesn't say anything. James and John just drop it and go, because basically, if you had the opportunity to follow a rabbi in this culture, you took that opportunity. You took it. You see, in Jesus' day, excuse me, in Jesus' day, there were essentially three levels to education. The first was what was called Bet Sefer or Sefer. Uh, it meant the house of the book, uh, and it was essentially like elementary school. All right, children uh, starting around the age of five would all enter into this stage to learn things like reading and writing and basic mathematics, all from the Torah. Which, if you're unfamiliar with what that is, that is the first five books of the Bible. Okay, in fact. Many, if not most of the children in this stage would actually memorize the the Torah, the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all memorized, which I don't know about you, but I just kind of find that impressive, right? It It makes me believe my children are capable of far more than I actually give them credit for, but this is what they would do. Now, This stage would last until they were about 12, uh, and at that point, the majority of children, their education stopped here. Uh, this, This is the age when most children, or this is the stage that most children would actually exit out of the educational system. They were done at this point. Females would go on to prepare for marriage, uh, and males would begin to apprentice under their fathers to learn the family business or the family trade, be it woodworking or stonework or fishing or whatever. But the children who were truly exceptional, they would move on to the next stage. It would be a second phase called Bet Midrash. And basically, the best moved on to this level. It would be a school built onto the side of the synagogue for boys and boys only who showed great potential and would learn from a full-time paid teacher. Here, they would memorize the rest of the Old Testament and learn a lot of the finer points of Jewish theology. But for the truly exceptional, education didn't end there. The best of the best would move on to what was called Bet Talmud. And this was for the elite. 
only the Rhodes Scholars type of Jewish men would uh, go on to this third and final level. And in, and in this stage of Jewish learning, it was not just about learning the things that your rabbi knew. It wasn't just information transfer to make the grade or get the degree or what have you. It was learning to become like who your rabbi was, to soak up everything about them that in the hopes that one day you would be like them yourself. So if perchance this were to happen to you, which just for the record, I love you, but the deck would be incredibly stacked against most of us, okay? Like, but for the sake of argument, let's just say this were to happen to you, that a rabbi invited you to be his disciple or his Talmudine. You would basically have three goals as an apprentice to your rabbi. The first would be to be with your rabbi, to 24-7, all day, every day, be with the one that you followed. Disciples would eat, sleep, and travel with their rabbi wherever he went. This is why you see the disciples virtually always with Jesus in the gospel accounts and why nobody seems to think that is weird at all. This is what they did. They wouldn't seek to miss a moment. Rabbis and their disciples had their lives intertwined in ways that we would actually feel uh, to be unreasonable and maybe even a little bit creepy, all right? Theologian Ray Vanderlyn talks about an old Jewish blessing that said, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. That one of the things that you would wish to a Talmudim would be that they would follow him so closely that the dust that would kick up from his sandals would cover you. And you would begin to, even in that, be more and more like him. This was the goal and the expectation for a disciple. And all of that was done in order for the third goal, that you would one day be able to do what your rabbi did. The point of apprenticeship was to one day, after soaking up, all that you could from your rabbi to become a rabbi yourself. That one day he would turn to you and say, okay, now it's your turn. You go and make disciples of your own. And here's the thing. It, this was a, a, a stage that was incredibly hard to get into. To become a Talmudim, you'd essentially have to apply and sit in an interview process with a rabbi who would grill you on your knowledge and size, size you up to see if you had what it took. And if he deemed you worthy, he would turn to you and say, come, follow me. And so you see, this is exactly what is happening in these texts this morning. Jesus is inviting Peter and Andrew and James and John and Levi and subsequently you and I as well as anyone else who would come after him into this life of a Talmudim, into this life of a disciple or an apprentice to Jesus. And I think this actually has some profound impacts or implications for us as followers of Christ and what this means. And that's what I want to share with you this morning. And the first is this. The first thing I want you to get is this, is that the invitation of Jesus is an invitation to discipleship. The invitation of Jesus is an invitation to discipleship. To be a Christian, what that means is to be a disciple of Jesus. The word disciple is used some 260 plus times in the New Testament to refer to Jesus's people. By contrast, the word Christian is used three, all right? 
In fact, early on, believers were simply just known as followers of the way. Now, the difference here, honestly, is somewhat semantic. I'll go ahead and own that for you. Uh, but I draw it out because there's a tendency, it's really popular to believe, especially in our context, that being a Christian merely means agreeing with some fundamental ideas about Jesus and then maybe showing up to church every now and again. That's sort of what it means to be a Christian, to just say yes to these four ideas and show up every now and again, and you're basically good to go for eternity. In fact, and you might think this is too sharp for me to say, but I don't think it is, but in fact, I think for many, the idea of being a Christian, if we're honest, we would never say this, but if we're honest, has more to do with Jesus following us than us following Jesus, if we can just put that out there. So I want Jesus, a Jesus that helps my day go better. I want a Jesus that helps me get the job that I want or the spouse that I want or the life that I want or the Jesus that helps my kids turn out all right. This is what I'm really after Jesus for. But that is not the life that Jesus invites any of us into. That is not the life of a disciple. His words in Mark 8 make that abundantly clear. In verse 34, he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For Jesus, it's an all-or-nothing gig. If you are going to be his, it is all in or nothing at all. Jesus invites us to cast everything else aside, to deny ourselves, lay down our personal desires and ambitions, our pursuits of control or comfort, whatever it may be, and to have him become the focal point of our existence. Nothing more and nothing less. You see, following Jesus, it's not a hobby or an optional part of Christianity if you so choose to jump into it. There is no, eh, I'm kind of into Jesus and I'm kind of into camping, as if those two things were comparable. That's not how this works. Following Jesus is meant to be the whole focus, the whole thing of your life. Now, look, that doesn't mean that you need to quit your job and become a pastor, okay? Listen, that's not what he's saying here. You can follow Jesus as a stay-at-home mom or as an accountant or a teacher or a doctor or whatever it is that you do, but you're meant to follow Jesus where you're at. But what it does mean is it does mean that the focal point of your life is meant to be an apprentice to Jesus. The focal point of your life is meant to be this way. Now, Perhaps you're thinking, but wait, hold up, Bailey. I know enough theology to argue with you just a little bit on this. I, I thought this whole Christianity thing was about faith. I thought this whole thing was Jesus is calling us to faith. And isn't faith just believing? Isn't that what it is? Well, here's how I would respond to you. Yes and no. Yes and no. Yes, this whole Christianity thing is about faith. Jesus is calling us to trust him above everything else for salvation, to trust in him and him alone, not our own works, not anything else that we might boast in, but him to save us. But what you have to understand is that faith, excuse me, is that following is what faith looks like with boots on the ground. Following is what faith looks like at ground zero. Another way to say it would be to say that the way we live reveals what we actually believe. The way we live reveals what we believe. I mean, imagine, for example, that you were sick and a doctor prescribed you a certain medication. You could say that you trust your doctor and that you believe that he made the right diagnosis and that this medicine will, in fact, make you better. But if you refuse to take it, what do you actually believe? Either that your doctor is an idiot 
or that you know more than him. Maybe both. I don't know. In the same way, following Jesus is saying with our lives, Jesus, I trust you over and above everything else. I trust what you say. I trust in who you are. I trust that you are for my good. I trust that you know how life works best, that your ways are what's right and true and good, despite what I think and despite what I feel, that you hold the keys to the good life and the keys to salvation. That faith in Jesus and following Jesus are ultimately inseparable. The two go hand in hand. And so if following Jesus is what Christianity is all about, then we need to ask the question, what does that practically mean for us? What does that practically mean for my life? Well, in short, it means that if you have faith in Jesus, you are meant to order your life around the same goals any disciple would have. Namely, in this case, to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do the things that Jesus would do. That is what your life as a Christian is meant to be about. It means that the first, and I would argue the most important aim of your life, is to be with Jesus. To be a person who is with Jesus. To be a person who knows Jesus intimately a person who has deeply experienced his love and his grace and his kindness, not just in a theoretical way, but in a personal way, a person who is well acquainted with his gospel, that forgiveness and hope and healing and freedom are found in his sacrifice and resurrection for us and there alone, a person who is consumed by the things that he says, a person aware of his activity around you, a person who trusts him, a person who listens to him, a person who knows, who knows him, a person who aims to spend every waking moment with their rabbi. Jesus. This is how Jesus says it in John 15. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. The metaphor Jesus uses here is that of a branch and a vine, that the life of a believer only functions properly when it flows out of connection with Jesus. Now, obviously, the question that we ought to be asking here is, how exactly? Because this would have been way, like, this was way easier, right, for Peter and Andrew and James and John, right? Like, I mean, they, Jesus was physically with them, and Bailey, I don't know if you realize this, but Jesus isn't physically here right now, so how do we do this whole be with Jesus thing? Well, the short answer is through the Holy Spirit. The long answer is, <laughs> the long answer is engaging with the Holy Spirit through what we call spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices, Things like reading and meditating on God's word, the Bible. Things like prayer and Sabbath, fasting, silence and solitude, and many, many more. All of these are vehicles to, in the language of Jesus, abide in the vine. To bring yourself into connection with God on a daily basis. To day by day, week by week, year by year, be a person who lives in the presence of God through the Holy Spirit. 
to be a person who consistently takes time to hit the pause button on all the things that cloud and distract your mind's eye off of Jesus day in and day out, to get to say to God, God, you are here and you've always been here. And I confess, I haven't. I've been in traffic. I've been on Instagram. I've been checking email, whatever it may be, but I haven't been with you. But God, I want to be with you. Now we are here, you and I, together to sit and for you to learn and soak up who he is and what he is about. I love how Dallas Willard puts it. He says, the first and most basic thing we can and must do is to keep God before our minds. This is the fundamental secret of caring for our souls. Our part in this practicing the presence of God is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to him. In the early time of our practicing, we may well be challenged by our burdensome habits on dwelling of things less than God. But these are habits, not the law of gravity, and can be broken. A new grace-filled habit will replace the former ones as we take intentional steps towards keeping God before us. Soon our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to the north. If God is the great longing of our souls, he will become the pole star of our inward being. That's that's a baller quote, all right? Like, listen, I I quote a lot of people. That's a great quote, all right? Like, it is a great quote. And here, this is what he's saying. He's saying, look, this is ground zero for an apprentice to Jesus, Like if you are new to this whole Jesus thing, like you have faith in his salvation for you, but you're not sure where to go from here, where to go is to be with Jesus, to carve out space in your life to connect with God, whether that be time in the morning or time at night or even periodic times throughout your day, just to create habits and space in your life to connect with God through the Holy Spirit. This is ground zero for us. And he says that over time, what begins to take place is in increasing measure, life with God actually becomes our new normal. It actually becomes the new way that we live here on planet Earth. And for the record, I just want to put this out there for you. This is the good stuff of the Christian life. Like, this is the good stuff of following Jesus. The absolute best part of following Jesus is Jesus. It is. It's Jesus to experience in fuller measure the depths of his love and his grace and his faithfulness, hope, peace, presence, and joy to you. To know with every passing day that Jesus loves you and not some hypothetical version of you, but he loves you as you are now and he is with you Always, in his own words, to the end of the age, he is with you today in whatever your mess is, in whatever your anxiety is. He is there, and through his grace, you have access to him each and every day. And so our aim is first to be with Jesus, to abide in him, to make our home in him. But out of that, being with Jesus, to become like Jesus, to become like Jesus. To become a person who lives how Jesus lived. That you think the way that Jesus would think. That you speak the way that Jesus would speak. That you interact and relate and respond to others in the ways that Jesus interacts and relates and responds to others. 
to become a person who is full of love and grace down to their very core, a person whose heart-level posture is to love their enemies instead of gossip about them or kill them or whatever, a person who trusts God deeply, like down in the core of you, trusts God deeply uh, as a father who provides instead of being a person who freaks out with worry over the bills at the end of the month or who your kids are turning into or whatever it may be. Essentially, to be a person who puts off what Paul in his letter to the Ephesians calls the old self, full of sin and idolatry and pride, and to put on the new self, in his words, created in the likeness of God, to become a person like God himself. In theological terms, this is what is called sanctification. Language that I personally like and I find a little bit more accessible is the idea of spiritual formation. That's Jesus' goal for us, spiritual formation. In his book, An Invitation to a Journey, Robert Mulholland defines spiritual formation as this. He says, spiritual formation is the process of being formed into the image of Christ for the sake of others. And I think that's a great definition for what discipleship actually is. Now, you might be sitting here asking yourself, well, like, why would I even want that? That sounds incredibly hard, uh, and yeah, it just sounds really kind of audacious. Why would I want that for my life? And the way I would answer to you is because, honestly, this is what you were made for. This is what you were made for. This is what being human truly is. In John 10.10, Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That word abundantly in the Greek is parasos. And in Greek, it means, it's, a, it's the superlative word that means like over and above to the nth degree, more than is necessary. Super added is even a way that I heard one person say it, but superior or extraordinary. And I love the way that Presbyterian pastor Eugene Peterson paraphrases this in his paraphrase of the Bible called The Message. He says, I came so that they can have real and eternal life, more and better life than they ever dreamed of. That this is what Jesus has come to give you. This is the life he has come to give you. Now listen, when he talks about this type of life, he isn't just referring to a quantity of life. He's not just referring to this idea that you'll be with Jesus for forever. And that's, listen, that's certainly a huge part of it. But Jesus is referring to a quality of life in the here and now, that there is a way to operate in the world right here, right now, such that you experience it to the fullness of what God intended for you, the way Jesus intended, the way that you were actually designed for. Now, to be clear, we are not talking about a life where you get everything you want, okay? We are not talking about a life where all of your dreams come true and every one of your desires is met. We are talking about a life that the Bible would call is full of the fruit of the Spirit, a life full of love and joy, a life of peace and patience, a life of kindness and gentleness, self-control and goodness, a life with the power and presence and comfort and hope and love of God. This is what it means to be truly human. This is the life that you were designed to live. And I mean, would any of us argue that we don't want that? Uh, I'll say it a different way. Would any of us argue even that life is better when it's filled with things other than that? Like, would we try to make the argument that, you know what? You know what the key to the good life is? Bitterness and resentment. That's, that's what I need a little bit more of. You know what I have too much of in my life? Forgiveness. Need to cut that 
out, right? Would we try to make the case that worry is the key to human flourishing? Or that selfishness in whatever form that it takes, whether it's greed or gossip or self-righteousness or narcissism, that those things are essential to the good life? No, of course not. Mulholland later goes on to say that spiritual formation is the experience of being shaped by God towards wholeness. And I think that is beautiful. Apprenticeship to Jesus is about wholeness, about you becoming the whole human you were meant to be in Jesus. And so what that means is to become like Jesus. It will mean learning to put off the old ways of living and believing and pursuing God's ways, pursuing the ways of Jesus. And this is another reason why following Jesus has to be a whole life endeavor. Because the closer we get to Jesus, here's what happens. The more and more aware we become of all these areas in our life that need healing and hope and redemption of Jesus, right? We become more aware of our need for Jesus and more things that we need to repent of. More areas where we need wholeness and healing. Areas where anxiety and insecurity still reign supreme in our lives. Areas of apathy and addiction lying unnoticed. Areas of impatience and anger and cynicism that we just considered the norm. And so the whole of our life as Christians becomes, as Luther would say, one of repentance as Jesus makes us more like himself. But not just for our own sake. Not wholeness just for our own wholeness sake. But also for the good of everyone around us. Because the third goal as a disciple of Jesus is to carry on the work of Jesus, to do the things that Jesus does. And this is where we have to keep in mind that Jesus wasn't just a rabbi, that he was much more than a rabbi. He was the son of God, the Messiah. He came to reverse the curse of sin in the world and deliver the kingdom of God. It is no accident that Jesus says anyone who comes after me must take up their cross using the very image of the burden he himself would carry. The goal is not just for us to be a people who know more about the Bible. It is not just to have a fulfilling sense of personal relationship with Jesus. Our goal is actually to join up in what Jesus is doing in the world, to become agents of his love to the people around us. And I'm going to talk about this, more, uh, this one more next week in light of Serve the City Weekend, but this is Jesus' end game for you, to transform you into a person of love as he is a person of love. As Jesus brings life and healing into the spaces that he inhabits, that we would become a people who do the same. A people who serve and care for the hurting around us. A people who share the good news of God's love and grace and mercy and hope with those who need it. A people who stand up for what is right and sacrifice themselves for the good of our neighbor. This is his end game. And so as a church... This is who we're aiming to be. This is what we want for us, to be a people whose lives are centered on Jesus, a people who follow him, a people who are with him, who are becoming like him, and a people who are doing the things that Jesus himself does. Now, my guess would be 
And maybe I'm assuming a little bit too much, and if I am, I'm very sorry, I apologize, but my guess would be that this vision of discipleship for your life is far, far more involved than you previously thought or felt capable of. That it's much bigger than maybe what you're currently experiencing or what you think is possible for you to do. And here's what I want to put out for you today. It's actually not. It's actually not. You see, here's the actual truth about being a disciple. The reality is, is you already are one. You already are one. Mahalan says it this way. He says, spiritual formation is not an option. The inescapable conclusion is that life itself is a process of spiritual development. You see, what he's saying is, is the question is not, are you being formed? But what are you being formed into? Formation is not an option. You are becoming something today. You are becoming something. We are all actually apprentices of something or someone. The only question is, what or who are you an apprentice of? I love how C.S. Lewis puts it. You're going to hate this quote, but it's good, all right? He says, every time you make a choice, You are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different from what it was before. And taking your life as a whole, with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature. Either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be one kind of creature is heaven. That is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of us at each moment is progressing to one state or the other. Y'all just want me to stop now? That's heavy, man. But he's right. The reality is, is with every decision you make, you are becoming something. There is no neutral. Every decision you make regarding how you spend your time, your money, your relationships, and everything in between is forming you into a certain type of person. The way we say it around here is that the things you do, do things to you. The things you do, do things to you. It is the inescapable reality of the human condition. The only choice we have is in whether that that moves us towards wholeness in Christ or towards something else. According to Jesus and Paul and Lewis and countless other thinkers and philosophers and psychologists, Christian or not, they all essentially agree that there is no such thing as being undisciplined. Everyone is disciplined about something. You have an aim in life. You have something that is your primary goal, your primary influencer, whether you know it or not. And the truth is, is you can generally see what you're disciplined about based on the many ways that you spend your time, or how you spend your money, or what you talk about. For most of us, our main aim is being entertained, if we can just be honest. Being entertained as much as possible so that we discipline ourselves around that. 
So when you hang out in life group and everybody's talking about their lives and what's going on, we have a tendency to get really quiet and maybe a little bit awkward when it comes to meaningful conversation. But hypothetically speaking, let's say somebody starts talking about Clemson football, well, then hypothetically, we have a whole lot to talk about, right? Just me? Is it only me? Sorry. Uh, it's real, though. It's real. For some of us, spending time reading the Bible sounds like this is an impossible task that you never seem to have time for. But the moment you get an email from work or find out the latest episode of your show is on or someone uh, reaches out to you to go hang out, well, then all of a sudden, you have a whole lot more time, apparently. It reveals what we are truly disciplined about. We all have one main thing in life that we center ourselves around. But is the main thing one of abundance that Jesus maps out for us? Or is it whatever our culture or our upbringing or our family or our feelings or circumstances or TV watch list has laid out for us? The reality is, is that moment by moment, we are choosing what kind of life we are really after. And those moments are forming us whether we know it or not. And so for you to choose the life of wholeness found in Christ, it begins with assessing where you're at. It's a recognition that the time, that your time and attention and adoration are going towards a million other things every single day. And then a reorientation or a discipline in your life to look more like Jesus means cutting out the million things that suck away at your soul each day so that you can prioritize the one thing, the presence of God being with Jesus. It's a recognition that your money goes towards, ton, excuse me, goes towards the things that you care about the most, most of which have no direct correlation towards warming your affections to Jesus or becoming more like him. And disciplining your life to be more like Jesus is going to mean cutting out the things that you spend money on so that you can prioritize the one thing, the mission of God and loving and serving those around you as Jesus has loved you. It's acknowledging that watching the next episode or staying at, staring at your phone for hours on end or checking your phone the first thing when you wake up and the last thing before you go to bed is shaping you and turning you into something. And the question is, is that a person that's going to look more or less like Jesus? And so it begs the question of you this morning. If you were to plot out the current trajectory of your life for the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, whatever, on into the future, who or what are you becoming? Who will you be then? Would you, more, would you be someone who is more fully, uh, would you more fully be an expression of Jesus through your personality and your gender or your socioeconomic status or whatever it may be? Or would you actually be turning in to something else? And that's my question for us today. This is what we want to be after. But here's what I know. I know that following Jesus or the lack thereof in our life for, for many of us is not for lack of desire. We want this. We want this life. I know many of us do. I know that many of us want to grow as a disciple of Jesus. The problem is, is we don't know where to start and it feels like everything is stacked against us. Our culture seems to set us up at a profound disadvantage here. Busyness and tech and hurry, they swallow us whole. Every single day, leaving us feeling empty and hollow, like we couldn't do many of things even if we wanted to. And so here's what I want to do. Part of how we view our job as your pastors is to equip you. 
okay? We equip the saints for the work of ministry, and it's the way the Bible would say it. Our role is to give you the tools and things necessary for you to follow Jesus well. And so actually, I have one that I want to introduce to you, something that we've been working on for the past couple of months that we believe is going to help us become this. I want to introduce you to followingjesustogether.com. It's a website. Followingjesustogether.com, obviously. This is a resource that we have spent a lot of time compiling for you to help you be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do the things that Jesus does. Over the years, our family of churches has accumulated loads of resources on the spiritual practices and growing as a discipleship, excuse me, growing as a disciple of Jesus. Following Jesus together is something we want to roll out to you to get all of those things in one place to make them incredibly accessible to you, to help you get started. And I'll let you know this, I'm calling this a living resource or a work in progress. Uh, Our plan is to keep adding to it. This is not the finished product. We want to keep adding to it so this becomes something that our church comes back to over and over again throughout our life. We want to find new and inventive ways to embody these things or to uh, work on these things together. But here's the thing, cultivating a life with Jesus that becomes like Jesus to do what Jesus does, the reality of it is, is it takes intention and it takes practice. Specifically, it takes practice in community with the help of the Spirit. And so we have to partner together with God to do this. And that is what this is designed to do. Followingjesustogether.com is our attempt to give you as much access to as much content as possible and training as possible to help us grow together. So let's say that you struggle to know how to even begin reading the Bible. Like how do I even begin to cultivate that inner life with Jesus. You can go to followingjesustogether.com and we have a whole section for abiding, for the disciplines of God's word and prayer, a whole slew of tools to help you get started. It might look like subscribing to the Bible reading plan and then meeting up for coffee once a week with someone in your life group to go over what you've been reading and to pray together. Let's say you have no clue how to pray, like nobody ever even taught you how to pray or how to talk to God. We got you with tools and guides to walk you through the cultivation of a life with Jesus. Three resources that I'm particularly excited about that I want to draw your attention to is we've put together daily guides for fighting against the three things that in my experience seem to plague our vitality in Jesus the most. Feeling overwhelmed, uh, feeling overwhelmed, feeling anxious, and feeling apathetic. These things seem to be our besetting sins. They seem to be the things that rob us of joy in Jesus more than anything else. And so we have created strategic plans to help you fight against this and press into the life that Jesus has for you. These these guides are three weeks long, and there's a passage for you to read and an activity for you to do. But each of these three tracks takes about five minutes a day, and I believe could could really bring about some radical changes in your life if you stick with them. And so in life groups, here's what we're going to do together this week. Our plan for our groups this week is to go to this website, and we are going to pick one thing with some of the others in our life groups to focus on for the next three weeks, to grow with Jesus together, to take our discipleship to Jesus seriously, and to sow some intentional seed into the life that Jesus has for us. Listen, we just want you to go and pick one thing. We say Rome wasn't built in a day. We don't want you to do all the things all at once because you're going to burn yourself out and that's ultimately not going to work. But we want to give you the tools you need to do one thing to grow as a follower of Jesus. But here's the last thing that I'll leave you with, and this is where we'll wrap up. I just want to leave you with the reality that 
the invitation to follow Jesus is available to anyone, and that includes you. The life that Jesus has for you is available to you. I would hate for us to miss this. These passages, passages want us to consider that who these people were that Jesus called. They were fishermen, tax collectors. If they were fishermen, what did that mean? They meant that they were not the elite. They weren't the best of the best. They weren't on any top 30, under 30 in Jerusalem list, right? That's not who they were. In fact, this is even how they're criticized later on in the scriptures. They're called ordinary, unschooled men. Consider Levi. He was a tax collector. That doesn't mean that he just worked for the IRS. It meant he was on Rome's payroll, the very Rome that was oppressing the Jewish people. Not to mention that tax collectors were notorious for taking a bit extra off the top to line their own pockets. He was not the moral compass of society, to say the least, nor the most popular guy on the block. And we didn't look at these texts, but there are other places in the gospel accounts that show us even more, that there were women who were included as disciples of Jesus. And this was unheard of in Jesus' day, that women are equal parts followers of, of Jesus' of Jesus's life. And so here's the thing. I think this should be radically encouraging for you because here's what it means. It means that there is no specific type to be a disciple. That discipleship is for you. That following Jesus is not about you making yourself worthy enough to be accepted by Jesus, but you coming to the one who makes you worthy and then allowing him to do his holy work in you. And that's what we want to be about. It's the good news of the gospel. And so let's go to Jesus together. Let's follow him as a people. Let me pray for you. God, we, uh, yeah, we are grateful for your love and your mercy to us, uh, that this invitation to follow you is one of strictly grace. It is not something that we earned. It is not something that we merit on our own, that we are unworthy of it, but you have invited us into it anyway. God, we confess that this is where the good life is found in you, and we confess that we often pursue it in a litany of other places, but God, I pray that you would help us to course correct on that, to repent of those things, and to recognize that the life we are really meant to live is found in you, but we don't get there on accident. And so, God, I just pray that you would help us as a people over the coming weeks, over the coming year, to make decisions that form us into the people you have created us to be to put ourselves in spots where your spirit can do the work that your spirit intends to do. And we just need you for that. I need you to open our eyes to help us see where do we need to grow? Like what is, what is the biggest deficiency right now in our discipleship to you? What are the areas of our life that we are leaving unchecked and unfazed by who you are? Help us to repent of those things that we might be with you, that we might become like you and become a people who do the things that you do for the good of our community. Help us there, God, we need you. We need you to do the heavy lifting. We are weak on our own, but in you we are strong, and so we need you to, to do that. Pray that you would. Yeah, it's your name we ask these things. Amen.